people first organizations will win in the future of work. Your only real asset is your people. We, we all, all want purpose-driven work. work. HR-led organization is I'm sorry, but leaders don't lead empty desks and empty shops. Welcome to the People Strategy Leaders Show. I'm your host, Sri Chalapa, founder and president of Engagedly, and a serial entrepreneur in technology, films, and music. This is where we talk to people leaders, business strategists, and organizational savants about leading in the time of change. What is working, what is not working, and more importantly, what we should be thinking about. Stick around to the end of the show. We will reveal how you can be our next guest. And now, let's engage. Hello and welcome to the People Strategy Leaders Podcast, and this is Shreesh Chalapa, your host. Today, I'm joined with Tom Fox. Tom Fox is the voice of compliance, having founded the only podcast network in compliance, the award-winning Compliance Podcast Network. Tom is also a best-selling author, having written 25 books in the areas of compliance, business ethics, and leadership. He's the author of the seminal work, The Compliance Handbook, 4th Edition. He recently published his first children's book, Being a Compliance Officer is Awesome, which is an Amazon bestseller in its first week. Well, welcome to the show, Tom. It's not every day we have uh, people like you who write business books about uh, for kids. It was not only my first business book for kids. After 25 books, within six months, it's my number one bestseller. So go figure. That's amazing. I would have thought a comic book would do uh, better, but compliance for kids—it's interesting, very interesting. I should I should uh, talk to you offline about maybe diversifying my writing interests as well. Um, so, you know, we were going to obviously talk about uh, some other compliance aspects as well as it relates to leadership and what lead- leaders need to look for. Um, but one thing that you mentioned is that you feel a leadership has changed over the years, and in your words, leadership's changed forever. Um, can you talk a little bit about what do you mean by that? Sure. So when I say leadership has changed, I mean leadership has to change. And the reason leadership has to change is we've had a series of events that really coalesced around the pandemic. Obviously, one of the most dramatic events in our lifetime, uh, medical you know, event, but that led to economic consequences when basically the world was shut down for a period of time. So we had a huge economic event. Um, We've had economic fallout since that time. We've had the first uh, war in Europe since 1945 uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, Unfortunately, right now, the United States and China appear headed down a path to certainly business competition to conflict and perhaps, you know, military conflict. And um, so when you overlay climate change, we have now had five straight days as we record this podcast of the hottest temperatures ever recorded on earth. And I live in in Texas and uh, in three, in two years, we had a thousand year flood and two 500 year floods. The next year we had the coldest weather in the history of the state of Texas. So when you have those sorts of extremes, uh, you have to be able to respond. And perhaps the best phrase I heard coming out of the pandemic was, we have moved from disaster recovery to business resiliency to business as usual. And what 
the person who told me that meant was it doesn't matter what the event is. All people care about is, are you going to get it done tomorrow? You may be in a part of the world where you've had a thousand year flood. I'm sorry, Tom, but I need this tomorrow. Um, what are you going to do? How are you going to deliver? Is it a product? Is it a service? Is it a widget? Is it a thing? Whatever it may be. Now, I did say that business has changed, but what that means is leadership has to change. And leadership has to, uh, if not anticipate those events, put processes in place and lead in a way that allows your company, your team, uh, your group, your tribe, whatever it may be, to just be ready the next day. Uh, so I think really leadership is at an inflection point because the world is at an inflection point, business is at an inflection point, and leaders must adapt. They must now take the time to learn how do you see around corners? How do you, if you don't anticipate something, how can you put a process in place that's flexible enough to, to really handle anything? And so I think you and I are a great example of of the conversations people are having about something like a pandemic has changed business and has changed leadership, I think uh, forever. So do you think the current leadership that you see, you know, you've been at it for a while, um, is ready for the leadership, ready for the type of challenges that we've faced in the last two or three years uh, and and probably will continue to face as far as I can see? Uh, I think either leaders will respond to the challenge or they will, they and their companies will fall by the wayside. In 2018, the United States Corporate Roundtable, an organization composed of the largest companies in the United States, issued a document entitled Statement on the Purpose of a Corporation. And previously, the purpose of a corporation was to make money for shareholders. Well, they expanded that definition to stakeholders. So certainly shareholders were within that group, but it included employees, it included customers, it included third parties you do business with, and it included the localities where you do business. All of those groups had an interest in a corporation and in corporations. And that means a leader needs to lead the all of those stakeholder groups, but also viewed another way, it's a great opportunity for a leader to engage in dialogue and actually have insight and input from those groups of stakeholders to help them be prepared. So I viewed that change by, well, that change was independent of everything I named to you as what's has changed, but it provided a framework or a leader to think through how they need to change. Yeah, yeah. I remember in business school, my finance professor uh, and business professor basically said, your first and only obligation is to your shareholders. And I don't think a professor's talk like that anymore. You know, um, and it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting that if somebody said that today, <laughs> they, they would be in deep trouble publicly. They would never own to saying that. Um, but uh, obviously, businesses have to exist, uh, and to exist, they you know they have to make profits and and uh, and thrive based on that. 
but i you know obviously we in the last three years since the pandemic started there's been a lot more focus uh, than ever before on inclusiveness there's been focus on doing the right things being environmentally friendly doing the esg but we're also seeing that just in the last few months a lot of backlash against it as well you know as you can see from the challenges Bud Light beer faced um, as well. Um, and as well as some of the statements from corporations are now missing ESG initiatives in their shareholder uh, meetings and, and, and documents. What do you think is happening over there? Well, um, it's a politicalization of a business process. So properly seen, ESG is simply a business process. Because what ESG does is it takes different or disparate parts of a corporation, puts rigor around it in terms of assessing the risk, getting the information in, and managing that risk, then monitoring whatever risk management strategy you put in place, and then continuous improvement based upon that monitoring. Now, in the E, obviously, that's environmental. In the S, it's a wide variety of things. It can be human resources, it can be safety, uh, it can be corporate culture, it can be anything you know within the S. But then the G, it's corporate governance. That's policies and procedures, internal controls, financial controls, corporate governance. Uh, so, and what ESG does is it elevates uh, all of those disparate categories of business processes into one framework. And you either have a head of ESG or a head of sustainability, or you have a committee that oversees it. Um, and who can be against more efficient business process? Because guess what? You're more profitable and right. you're more, you know, you're more resilient. And you you understand and you're able to look at a wider variety of things. So I was a general counsel and I was, you know, perceived myself to be very good as a general counsel, but I was in a narrow focus. I wasn't operations. I wasn't financial. I wasn't internal controls. I wasn't HR. I wasn't IT. I wasn't, you know, any of those things. And so I didn't have visibility across all of those. ESG gives someone or some group that visibility. And I think it makes the corporation more efficient. And I don't see who can be against that, uh, making the corporation more effective. In terms of business opportunity, um, I did a podcast this morning where it's estimated that there's up to $3 trillion that will be spent on sustainability or climate change, if you want to call it that. And that's one of the greatest business opportunities of this century. Uh, so if you're a business person, who could be against a business opportunity? The easiest example that certainly you and I are aware of, is Y2K. Because in 1995, people started saying, oh my God, we're all going to die <laughs> on January 1, 2000, and we have to do something. And what happened was people prepared for it, and they prepared for it because software was updated, hardware was updated, computers were updated, and a huge amount of business was engaged to prepare ourselves and prevent Y2K. And did it cost money? Yes. But did it generate jobs and income? Absolutely. And so we had a, an entire new generation of computers, hardware, and software come into play. 
Well, sustainability is that, you know, times a thousand or maybe times a million. Um, so there's a huge opportunity in sustainability, a business opportunity. And it's something that a business leader uh, can look at and say, how can I get a piece of that pie? So yes, those terms have become politicized, but the people who are politicizing them are missing the business opportunity. Because as I said with ESG, who can be against more efficient business process? Um, and then who can be against business opportunity? And if it has the benefit of making the world climate better, who can be against that? If it makes the world safer uh, because oceans are rising less or the, these catastrophic weather events are occurring less, you know, who, who, who could be against that? Yeah, yeah. You make a good point there. I think the the whole political aspect is, I guess, helps certain groups win points. Um, and it goes both ways, by the way. So it's uh, unfortunate. Um, but I do believe there is a, a value, and I still continue to believe that there's value in, in taking an approach that has this ESG bent to it uh, vocally as a leader, uh, including some of the diversity and inclusion aspects of the ESG as, ESG as well, because it helps retain your best employees. It helps create a good work culture. You know, it helps teams work together. And data has shown uh, over and over again that diverse teams perform better than more homogenous teams out there. So there is value, business value in doing that, not just uh, more advertising yourself as a, as a leader in social uh, and other aspects like that. So um, I totally 100% agree with that. Now, you were also mentioning, you know, that leadership has changed. So what does leadership now look like going forward that would you say the current leaders nearly need to think about, um, even if it is just outside the ESG aspect of it? Like what some of the things that you should be doing differently going forward? Sure. So um, the days of sort of command and control, hopefully, are long gone. And uh, a leader has to engender trust with his employees. Uh, number one, to have employees buy into whatever the corporate mission is. Um, but there has to be a belief that we are doing the right thing and we're moving in the same direction. But perhaps counterintuitively, but equally important is trust allows employees to raise their hand and speak up. Now, in the compliance world, we call that a whistleblower hotline. You can call it an internal reporting line. Whatever you call it, it's essentially raising your hand and speaking. And if employees believe they'll be punished or retaliated against for speaking up, or their ideas will be ignored, they never will speak up. And speaking up does not simply mean, you know, I saw Tommy kissing mommy or kissing someone, you know, on the playground. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about speaking up to make your company better. About five years ago, uh, there was an academic study about speak up cultures, and it focused on the amount of cost savings that companies had from speak up. But as a ancillary point, it talked about speak companies with a speak up culture are actually more efficient because employees are invested in the corporate mission. That mission is set by the leader and that leader sets the tone that says, 
you can always raise your hand and speak up. Doesn't mean, you know, you can walk through my door anytime you want. Um, you have to have policies and procedures in place to uh, garner that information and input that information. But once you put that procedure in place, you have to assure that the person will be listened to and not retaliated against. And once again, that's the kind of thing a leader has to do now. And people talk about, you know, a servant leader or a leader who listens. Well, how about a leader who sets the culture of a company that the company will listen? That's leadership as well. So you can you can lead your employees directly by having that, that kind of relationship if you have a small enough company. But if you have 10,000 people, if you set that tone, you can have the same benefit as a leader. Yeah. And especially, you know, command and control, you you become the bottleneck every 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 single point any decision has to make and the command and control system really has changed rapidly in the last three four years i, I have seen personally myself working in organizations and working with organizations i should say where i think uh, where i've seen organizations become more delegatory are willing to let employees make decisions even make mistakes and and because that's how you innovate and and you and without risk taking there's no innovation uh, innovation by definition means that some of these changes and things you'll you'll do will fail that's what innovation is right you cannot innovate if you know for certainty it's going to work um every single time right so i think that is 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 a very positive change and the cultures i can see not just in the us uh you know, adopting that it's adopt being adopted in cultures across the world, in work cultures across the world. So that's definitely has changed. And people who want to micromanage, uh, leaders who want to have a strong control, um, I think are going to be soon in the minority, if not already. So I am definitely, you know, seeing that as well. So you mentioned something about, you know, five things and talking about international businesses, you know, what are the type top five challenges that do you feel the international businesses face that people in leadership need to be aware of? So in uh, really no particular order is supply chain. Uh, I think that's one thing we learned in the pandemic. Are you ready to lose a geographic region? Are you ready to lose a key supplier? Are you ready to lose um, the ability to mine critical minerals for your infrastructure, really all of that. And that's from the pandemic, of course, but now we have modern slavery laws, which prevent uh, use of products generated by uh, those in involuntary servitude, uh, at least because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there have been a, a number of economic sanctions and trade sanctions put on place against Russia. And so many companies have lost Russia as a supply uh, a supply partner for Russian companies. And now with the United States and this, whatever we're in with China, whether it's competition slash conflict, uh, what have you thought through, um, are you, what happens if you lose a, your customer base? So for instance, I was really, really surprised to find out the U.S. timber industry their biggest customer is China. What happens if that customer goes away for whatever reason, competition or conflict? And how are you going to replace your biggest customer? 
well, maybe you could sell timber and create an entire new housing market. I mean, I think every country in the world, housing has become more and more scarce and more and more valuable. My wife is from England. And um, people sort of 20 to 40, they can't afford to buy a house. Young, and I would say young people, but you know, a, a married couple in their 40s can't afford to spend the money to buy a house. And so that has consequences. Uh, cons consequences for the couple, consequences for raising a family, consequences for the tax base, consequences um, uh, for the economy. And so if you can't sell all of your lumber to China, maybe you could sell part of it to England. And maybe you could sell part of it inside the United States because I live in a rural part of Texas. And even in my little part of Texas, housing is incredibly expensive. And it's difficult to get people in their 20s to move to my little town because they can't afford a house. Right. But it's not just they can't afford a house. The police can't afford to hire policemen because the policemen can't afford to live in the town. And the same for firefighters and the same for city employees and the same for teachers. They're same really for any public, I don't want to say public servant, but someone who works for a, a government or governmental entity that you and I might consider a mandatory government, like police, fire, teachers, et cetera. So housing is an incredibly uh, important issue. And maybe because it may be if you can't sell all of your lumber to China, maybe you could sell it inside your own country. Right. And maybe that could help the housing crisis. Right. And also, so logistics, you said, was one of supply chain. What are the other other ones? Um, well, um, cybersecurity is hugely critical. And at least in the United States, uh, we have gone to almost full-time non-kinetic warfare, meaning attacks, cyber attacks against companies and uh, governmental entities in the United States. So it used to be uh, early, on, early on, two or three years ago, it was theft of company information to sell on the black market or uh, uh, on the dark web, rather, people's account numbers. Well, now it's theft of IP, or then right. it became ransomware, and now it's theft of IP. So uh, cybersecurity is a, a huge issue. Uh, trade sanctions and um, who and where you can do business is uh, another critical area. So um, I talked about Russia and how Russia has been cut off both as a trading partner and as a purchaser of goods from the West, largely. Uh, ESG is uh, another issue, and I'm going to include in that sustainability and some of the comments we had earlier about the importance of um, the business opportunity around sustainability. But I would also add one other factor, that many people now want to buy goods from companies they believe are ethical or sustainable or green, whatever the term you might use is. And if a company's not, they won't do business with them. Well, the significance of that is if 
your company gets in trouble with a regulator in whatever, for whatever reason, and you pay a fine, first of all, you're assessed the fine and you pay it. Well, uh, in the business world, all you really want is certainty. And if you get a fine, then you know what your fine is. And then you can reserve for it. You can pay for it. You can budget for it. You can do all those things that a business does. But if you lose sales, you've lost money off the top line, meaning you can't replace that. If you've lost a sale, if you've lost 100 sales, if you lost 25% of your market because people believe um, um, that all your company does is stand for shareholder enrichment, um, you may lose business and you'll never recover that business. So when I say ESG is a category, it's much broader than simply the E and the S and the G and is broader than sustainability. It's really the way customers now and largely younger people um, view who they're going to spend their money on. So, um, and then the, the final one is international anti-corruption initiatives. Now, uh, the United States uh, has been at the forefront of this since 1977, but almost every major company in the world, company, country in the world, has an anti-corruption law. And it's all sort of going to come together in Ukraine for the following reason. Ukraine will be the largest construction project in the world, a rebuild of Ukraine after the war ends. It will be the largest um, construction project since World War II. Uh, it, right now, it's estimated that over $400 billion will be spent in the reconstruction of Ukraine. It will be money from the United States, from the United Nations, from the EU, from NATO, from the World Bank, from the International Monetary Fund. There will be huge construction companies. You name the construction company, they're going to be in Ukraine. And the biggest risk there will be corruption, basically stealing the money that's mm -hmm. earmarked for this massive construction project. And so all of these governmental entities have put extra anti-corruption processes and protections in place. So if you want to do business, you want to be part of that business opportunity, you're going to have to have an anti-corruption compliance program. And so that's uh, really number five. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even think about that, but that's obviously a huge opportunity, but also a huge, um, you know, possibilities of corruption that people have to, people have to, leaders have to address if they're doing business over there. Right. Well, Tom, um, it's been a, a really insightful discussion. Um, where can people reach you and learn more about you? And, uh, you know, and also uh, maybe you can talk a little bit about what your podcast covers as well. Sure. So the Compliance Podcast Network, as the name says, it covers all things compliance. It's 65 podcasts in the podcast network. We post four to six times a day in topics as diverse as leadership, daily compliance, weekly compliance, compliance into the weeds, Star Trek and compliance, Star Wars and compliance, Sherlock Holmes and compliance. Um, I have a daily compliance tip of the day. I do news shows. I do panels. So it covers all forms of compliance. Uh, that's called the Compliance Podcast Network. And that's at the compliancepodcastnetwork.net. Then there's, uh, if you want to look at the rural hill country of Texas where I live, there's the Texas Hill Country Podcast Network. 
Uh, I'm on LinkedIn at Thomas R. Fox. You can email me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. So I'd love to engage with you. If you have any questions about podcasting, about compliance, uh, I'm running a series this week on uh, chat GPT. So if you want a primer on chat GPT, uh, check out my podcast, Compliance and AI, and you'll learn about chat GPT. Yeah, that's probably another interesting topic we should connect on. There's a lot of use of AI now, and we are obviously doing a lot of AI work in our product as well uh, that we provide to our customers and uh, have had a several several discussions around compliance requirements in AI, and I'm a big believer that we need to do that sooner than later. So, well, thanks, Tom. It's been a pleasure uh, talking to you. Um, I love all the awards you've been winning, so uh, I appreciate you making time for the show. Thank you very much. I look forward to continuing this conversation. Right, great. Until next time. Shri Chalapa here. Thank you so much for listening to the People Strategy Leaders Podcast. If you are a successful leader or a people strategist who would like to be on this program, please visit engagedly.com slash people strategy leaders podcast. If you got something out of this interview, would you share this episode on social media? If you know someone that would be a great guest, tag them on social media to let them know about the show and include the hashtag people strategy leaders. I love seeing your posts and guest suggestions. We are regularly putting out new episodes and content. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, go ahead and subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. Want to know more? Follow me on LinkedIn and Twitter at Sri Chalapa. Thanks for listening. We will see you next time. And thank you to Patrick Ramsey, sound engineer at Kalinga Production Studios, for recording and mixing this show.